0: Hey there, you're listening to a special presentation from the Black Mountain College Museum and Arts Center. My name is Pierce Kelly, and I'm a 2021 Active Archive resident with the museum. I'm a writer and radio producer, and I'm working with the museum to create a narrative podcast series about Black Mountain College, using the museum's rich collection of audio recordings. I've also been speaking with a range of scholars and archivists who are interested in the story of the school. In this podcast, the one you're listening to now, You'll hear some interviews I conducted in April when I visited Asheville, North Carolina, where the museum is located. It's a sneak peek at some of the great conversations we'll eventually feature in the finished documentary series. The first voice you'll hear is Heather South. She's the lead archivist at the Western Regional Archives in Asheville, and she's also co-author of the Images of America book, Black Mountain College, which collects archival photos at the school. Among people who research Black Mountain College, Heather is kind of a legend. She knows the Black Mountain Archive better than just about anybody. And she had lots to tell me about this deep and rich collection of documents and tapes related to the school.
1: I've been working in archives for over 25 years. I have never worked with a collection that had such a broad appeal. It's the largest collection we have here and by far it is the most requested and used that we have. It's wild, the early scholarship only focused on the heavy hitters, the famous people, the Joseph and Annie Albers, the Walter Gropius. And now we're digging a little bit deeper and scholarship is looking at it. Well, who studied under these individuals and what did they teach and how did they teach? And so there's a lot of different lenses now being applied. Same thing with general history is that, you know, we used to not look at perspectives from the women or we used to not look at the African-Americans perspective or from children's lenses, you know? And now we're going back and we're trying to look at that. It's also that you drink the, the Kool-Aid, honestly. Um, we we really all just wish we were there to see what was going on, to hear what was being discussed. We're looking at it and being, oh man, that must have been great. But then, you know, if you'd have been there at the time, it was probably like, man, I do not want to go shovel cow manure. You know, I came here to study art, not farm. We think of Black Mountain College as sort of this, oh, city on a hill kind of thing and 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 utopia but really and truly it was an average college campus in a lot of ways.
0: One person who's recently been looking at Black Mountain College from a new angle is Julie Levin Caro who's a professor of art history at Warren Wilson College also in Asheville where she's currently chair of the art department. In 2018 Julie curated a wonderful show at the Black Mountain College Museum and Art Center. That show was called Between Form and Content, Perspectives on Jacob Lawrence and Black Mountain College. And it focused on the summer of 1946, when the artists Jacob Lawrence and Gwendolyn Knight traveled from New York City to Black Mountain. Julie and I spoke about that visit and about the college campus as a special kind of meeting place. Because Julie and I both teach at the college level, It seemed natural to begin our conversation by thinking about how the COVID-19 pandemic and the shift to virtual learning might help us see what's so special about the shared physical space of college campuses. Just to get our conversation started off, looking back at Black Mountain from where we are now, that, that is in the middle of the pandemic, I find myself thinking a lot about the idea of the college campus and what we all used to do there. And you and I are both teaching virtually right now. And it has to be said that one of the many losses associated with the pandemic is the loss of students and instructors all being together in the same place. And so in that light, I'm hoping we can talk about Black Mountain College as a meeting place and and focus on a specific moment of meeting that occurred there. And you've told me that your interest in Black Mountain College started with a group photograph from the summer of 1946. Can you tell me how you encountered and then re-encountered that photo? So that photograph, I think, is one of the iconic
2: photographs of the history of Black Mountain College, and you see it a lot. It's on the cover of Mary Emma Harris's book, The Arts of Black Mountain College. You often see it in books about the college or about other artists who were there. But I first encountered that photograph when I was in college studying art history. And interestingly enough, I encountered it two times in the same semester in two different classes, one on modernism and postmodernism, and one on African-American art in the 20th century. And the reason I encountered that in both classes was because the African-American artist Jacob Lawrence is in the photograph, along with people like Joseph Anani Albers and Walter Gropius, who were all artists from the Bauhaus, the Albers who were living and teaching at Black Mountain College. Walter Gropius was visiting that summer to give some lectures on architecture and a range of other artists who were there that summer. And so for me that photograph really got me thinking about how the history of African American art and the history of modernism and postmodernism are connected history, you know, they're connected through Black Mountain College. So, you know, flash forward to when I come to live in Black Mountain and teach at Warren Wilson College, which is a liberal arts school just down the street from the original campus of Black Mountain College, I got really interested in thinking about Jacob Lawrence's experience at the college in the context of an exhibition. And that photograph really was something that I used as a kind of touchstone or a, a jumping off place for my research because, you know, in one way it seems like a very complete photograph. You see the Albers there, you see Gropius, you have the Bauhaus connection. You've got Ted Dreyer there, who was one of the founding faculty of Black Mountain College. Then you have this range of other artists. Leo Amino, a Japanese-American artist. Jean Varda, who's sitting in the tree. He was a Greek-born modernist who had hung out in Paris with Picasso and was teaching painting and collage that summer. You have Beaumont and Nancy Newhall, the photographers who were there. Leo Leone was teaching graphic design. And of course, the Lawrences and also Molly Gregory. I shouldn't leave her out. She was originally a student who also taught woodworking at the college. And so it seems like it's very complete. But actually, there's a lot of questions that I had looking at that photograph. Like, how did all those people get there? Why did Albers invite them? Why did Jacob Lawrence say yes to coming down to Black Mountain College that summer, even though he knew he'd be leaving Harlem and coming to the segregated South. So it was like that photograph
0: gave me a whole list of things to unpack. And I'd love to unpack some of those very questions. Why did Albers invite Lawrence and Gwendolyn Knight to come down for the Summer Arts Institute?
2: I don't know that I ever actually answered it for absolute sure. And actually Jacob Lawrence asked that question in an interview. He says, you know, why did Albers invite me? Because I'm a figurative artist, I'm a narrative artist, and he's an abstract artist. But one thing to know about Joseph Albers and the way he planned those summer institutes is he was very broad-ranging in his thinking about bringing artists into the campus for the summer. It was very different than his own work. That being said, if you look at Lawrence's work, it's kind of bold use of color, the hard edges of his forms. I mean, Lawrence is very much informed by modernism and abstraction, even though his painting is figurative and narrative. And I think Albers clearly was attracted to that. Lawrence was also probably the most successful Black artist at the time. His work had already been shown at MoMA, at the Whitney. It had been published in Life magazine. So Albers, who very much closely followed the New York art scene, would have known Lawrence's work. It was also a moment when the college was actively trying to integrate both students and faculty. And so I never saw that written out anywhere. Certainly he didn't mention it in his correspondence with Lawrence. And as Lawrence described it, Albers called him up on the telephone. And invited him, and he said yes, knowing full well what it would mean to go to the South
0: for the summer. Well, you've said that Lawrence shipped a bunch of paintings down from his gallery in New York and and showed them in the dining hall. What did Albers think of Lawrence's work? That was one of the
2: first documents I found in the archives, and that was a very exciting day when I found some correspondence between Albers and Jacob Lawrence's gallery, which was the Edith Halpert Gallery, about borrowing some paintings for an exhibition. Apparently he asked every visiting artist teacher to have an exhibition. And so there were multiple exhibitions throughout the summer, all staged in the dining hall because that was where where they had the space to do it, I guess. And so I found the packing list, which listed the eight paintings that were shipped with the titles. I was able to do research and find I think six of the eight paintings. It was a range of some really famous paintings by Jacob Lawrence that we now know, paintings like The Photographer, and then some paintings that he did while he was in the Coast Guard, and then a few paintings that are now lost. There's no photographs of that exhibition. There's just the documentation of the packing list, Albers inviting him to do it, and then Lawrence commenting that he did have an exhibition there They were hung on, he said, the balcony, which is what we think of now as the porch of the dining hall. He noticed that Albers would sit at a different table every day at lunch and look at a different painting. And he really thought that was um, an amazing thing. Even though they never really talked about his work, per se, he knew that Albers was taking the time and and was very interested in looking at it. And I think that was something that was really important to the summer for Albers and and for the other professors and uh, the students to see the work of the different teachers, you know, not just to have them in, in class.
0: The last person you'll hear from today is Tom Frank, a scholar who taught for many years at Wake Forest University and Emory University. He co-edits the Journal of Black Mountain College Studies, which is published by the Black Mountain College Museum and Arts Center. Tom studies utopian communities, and he's interested in how Black Mountain College is, and isn't, similar to the sort of utopian communities that have emerged periodically throughout American history. He also had some fascinating things to say about the importance of place. Now, for our conversation today, one idea I want to put forward, there's this image that draws people to the story of Black Mountain, I think, which has to do with its ostensible singularity, right? This school of misfits that popped up in the woods in the mountains, motivated by a sort of like Henry David Thoreau desire to, to do it their own way. And, and you've pushed back on this idea a little bit because you've argued that the school was way more networked than people typically understand, both in terms of its received influences, uh, the resources and ideas it was drawing on, and also its subsequent influence on other schools over time. So I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about those lines of influence. And, and I was thinking first we could talk about the influence of place. And it's, of course, it's right there in the name, Black Mountain College. And and Robert Motherwell has said something like, if if Black Mountain had been on Long Island, not in rural North Carolina, it might still exist. I wonder, what do you think about that idea?
3: I've often said that new colleges have thrived based on their proximity to New York City, because New York people have funded so many institutions of higher education. So in that sense, it's true. Being there would have uh, put the college closer to sources of funding, but it wouldn't have been in the mountains. It wouldn't have been on a charming lake at the end of a cove. It wouldn't have started at a very grand uh, YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association, building with a magnificent view out over the mountains. If you look at the literature when Black Mountain started, the mountains figure greatly in advertising the college. There. Their version of a view book that every college has today, the mountains were always on the cover, like panoramic photos of the mountains. So they obviously had a a great significance as a bit of a a place apart where you could form a community of learning without a lot of undue uh, influences in a beautiful place. That's pretty typical of college history, which is something I've studied a lot. Liberal arts colleges were usually located in small town or rural areas, often on a hilltop. They thought the air was cleaner and the influences of urban life were not as strong on the kids. Putting a liberal arts college in a relatively rural place is common historically. That wasn't particularly a new move. It was just a place that the founders heard about and discovered they could rent.
0: I'm glad you mentioned this idea that this wasn't a new concept of putting a liberal arts school in an isolated place. And the school was physically isolated, but you've observed that it was really, really heavily networked with places all around the country, particularly uh, New York City, which also cuts against this sort of Thoreauian image of isolation that we sometimes have. So can you tell me a little bit about the school's connections, both uh, sort of locally and further afield?
3: If you invoke Thoreau, you got to remember he was only two miles out of town and came home for Sunday dinner every week. But anyway, that's beside the point. <laughs> His observation. I think that might be cute. exactly the point, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so Black Mountain College had a farm. Where did they learn to farm? I mean, people were going back to the land, didn't know how to farm. That was true of utopian communities all along. Well, they learned it by uh, getting the, the people from the farm school down the road now. Warren Wilson College to come teach them. That's just one of many networks. You could kind of put it in different pieces. So if you look at who came to college, many of the students, not by any means all, but many of the students who came were from families that could afford to pay for the college in the 1930s. And that was, of course, an extremely rugged economic time for really most Americans, most people around the globe. It was a very difficult time. But wealthy families, or relatively wealthy, would have resources to send their kid to a place like Black Mountain. So there were a lot of connections built that way. A member of the Styx family, S-T-I-X, John Styx, went to Black Mountain College. You know, his family was one of the wealthiest families in St. Louis. He went on to be a Broadway producer. And of course, the Dreyer family was instrumental in, in just about everything, especially in the early years and deeply ensconced in New York economy and society. So, when there were fundraising trips, like if Joseph Albers, when he was rector, wanted to help raise money, where'd he go to make a speech? He went to the Museum of Modern Art and gave a speech about Black Mountain College. So, so there's that connection. But then there was a whole other group of people who were not from wealthy families, and and they could come and be in a place that was relatively low cost, and the costs were kept down by actually working on the farm and so on. They came from a, a variety of places outside the big City. And then, of course, the college also was was deeply networked as I, as I started out with, with the institutions in this area. One of the bromides that I complain about the most is that people just repeat each other. And one of the things they repeat is that the college was in an isolated rural area, you know, distant from everything. Well, no, it was outside of Asheville. And... You know, there was a two-lane highway to Asheville. I'm sure it felt isolated, especially if you were from New York City, which is where a lot of the complaints came from. (laughs) But anyway, there were a lot of institutions in Western North Carolina. I mean, some of them were approaching a a kind of a similar audience. They were trying to help uh, rural and small-town people build their economy back during the Depression and and to do so by practicing crafts and and, uh, things that they could actually contribute, sell, Market within the economy to have stability. You know, John C. Campbell Folk School is over a couple of hours uh, west of, of Black Mountain, uh, Penland just a couple hours north. Plus, the fact that Asheville itself was a magnet for people who were, I would say, innovative in the sense of trying to really excel, for example, in high school education. Asheville High School was an outstanding school. It has one of the most beautiful high school buildings I've ever seen, designed by the same architect who did a lot of the buildings downtown. So it wasn't like a desert out there. There was a lot going on. Black Mountain wasn't the first attempt at starting a college either in this area. Columbia University tried to start one. And it failed. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, it failed after a short time. They called it the new school of Columbia University. And they were on the other side of Asheville, about the same distance out on a farm. They went a little too far in the students being required to work on the farm equally as much as they were studying. Farm work is hard and they were too tired to study. So <laughs> that model just didn't jibe, you know. But uh, it was a nice try. (laughs) A failed experiment. failed experiment, yes.
0: So that's a taste of some of the fascinating conversations I've had about Black Mountain College during my time as an active archive resident. I hope you've enjoyed listening, and I hope you stay tuned for the full podcast series. That podcast will bring to light new perspectives on topics such as democracy, progressive education, modernism, and abstraction, telling the story of Black Mountain College within the scope of 20th century history and reflecting on the many, many ways that Black Mountain College has shaped culture in the present day. This podcast, and my visit to the Black Mountain College Museum and Arts Center, was made possible by a grant from South Arts. And the music you're hearing right now is by Jack Ladd.